Mark chapter 11 and verse 27. I'm going to read from J.B. Phillips' version. Mark 11, 27. So they came once more to Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests, elders, and scribes approached him and asked, What authority have you for what you are doing? And who gave you permission to do these things? I am going to ask you a question, replied Jesus. And if you answer me, I will tell you what authority I have for what I do. The baptism of John now. Did it come from heaven, or was it purely human? Tell me that. At this they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe on him? But if we say it was purely human, well, for they were frightened of the people, since all of them believed that John was a real prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know then I cannot tell you by what authority I do these things, returned Jesus. Then he began to talk to them in parables. A man once planted a vineyard, he said, fenced it round, dug out the hole for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he let it out to some farm workers and went abroad. At the end of the season, he sent a servant to the tenants to receive his share of the vintage. But they got hold of him, knocked him about, sent him off empty-handed. The owner tried again. He sent another servant to them, but this one they knocked on the head and generally insulted. Once again he sent them another servant, but him they murdered. He sent many others. Then he began to talk to them in parables. A man once planted a vineyard, he said, fenced it round, dug out the hole for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he let it out to some farm workers and went abroad. At the end of the season, he sent a servant to the tenants to receive his share of the vintage. But they got hold of him, knocked him about, and sent him off empty-handed. The owner tried again, he sent another servant to them, but this one they knocked on the head and generally insulted. Once again he sent them another servant, but him they murdered. He sent many others, and some they beat up, and some they murdered. He had one man left, his own son, who was very dear to him. He sent him last of all to the tenants, saying to himself, They will surely respect my own son. But they said to each other, This fellow is the future owner. Come on, let's kill him, and the property will be ours. So they got hold of him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard is going to do? He will come and destroy the men who were working in his vineyard and will hand it over to others. Have you never read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner. This was from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they tried to get their hands on him, for they knew perfectly well that he had aimed this parable at them. But they were afraid of the people. So they left him and went away.
Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herod party to trap him in an argument. They came up and said to him, Master, we know that you are an honest man and that you're not swayed by men's opinion of you. Obviously, you don't care for human approval, but teach the way of God with the strictest regard for truth. Is it right to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not to pay? But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said to them, Why try this trick on me? Bring me a coin and let me look at it. So they brought one to him. Whose face is this? asked Jesus. And whose name is this inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said, Then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. A reply which simply staggered them. And then uh, in chapter 12, verse 35. Later, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he remarked, How can the scribes make out that Christ, or Messiah, is David's son? For David himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet. David is himself calling Christ Lord. Where do they get the idea that he is his son? The vast crowd heard this with great delight. And Jesus continued in his teaching. Be on your guard against these scribes who love to walk about in long robes and to be greeted respectfully in public and to have the front seats in the synagogue and the best places at dinner parties. These are the men who grow fat on widows' property and cover up what they are doing by making lengthy prayers. They are only adding to their own punishment. Then Jesus sat down opposite the temple alms box and watched the people putting their money into it. A great many rich people put in large sums. Then a poor widow came up and dropped in two little coins worth together about a nickel. Jesus called his disciples to his side and said to them, Believe me, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. For they have all put in what they can easily afford. But she in her poverty, who needs so much, has given away everything, her whole living. Well, now this evening, we will take up more or less exactly where we left off last week. We have uh, started upon this second subdivision of this third major division of Mark's Gospel, the servant of the Lord, obedient unto death. We have dealt last week the triumphal entry of the servant of the Lord into Jerusalem, and we began to deal with this matter of the rejection of the servant of the Lord by the Jewish people and God's rejection of them. We um, dealt with the first matter, which was the rejection of the barren fig tree, which included also the cleansing of uh, the temple. Now we come to this. Chapter 11, verse 27. I have called it the authority of the Lord's servant challenged 
by the Jewish establishment. The challenge constituted by Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the Messiah, the messianic servant of the Lord spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah and his cleansing of the temple was very quickly taken up. Powerful representatives of the Jewish establishment came to him whilst he was walking about in the temple and challenged his authority directly. Up to now they had not directly challenged his authority. Now they directly challenged it. May I just explain what I mean because I'm going to use this word rather a lot, establishment. Perhaps you younger people have heard the term establishment a number of times. It speaks really of the sort of people who are in authority, the sort of with it lot uh, as far as government goes, uh, who are sort of those who pull the, the strings of power, uh, the sort of entrenched, um, often nameless people who are uh, the real influence in a nation, the establishment. So when we speak of the Jewish establishment, we're talking about the high priest, the chief priest, the elders, the scribes, very wealthy landowners and others who together held real power in their hands and the destiny of the nation. Now, just let's take a look at this. First, verse 27. We have it here. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him. The establishment. Powerful representatives of the establishment. Secondly, see in verse 28, their challenge. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now remember that this is on the same day, probably within an hour, of Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Now one of the other gospel writers tells us that at the same time, the Lord Jesus healed quite a number of blind and lame people in the temple. And that the children were shouting all the time because of the excitement of the time of the evening before, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this annoyed the temple authorities very, very much indeed. So it is really the same morning, probably, that the, these powerful representatives of the uh, authorities, of the establishment, came to the Lord Jesus and challenged him. Now, it was a direct challenge. By what authority do you do these things? This triumphal entry. Make this claim. Take to yourself messianic prophecies. And um, by whose authority? Um, uh, by, uh, uh, and who gave you this authority, rather? Where, what is its origin? What is its source? Then a third thing I just want you to note, it's only a little aside, but I think it's a delightful aside, uh, again, which we found, of which we found so many in the Gospel according to Mark, do note that little, uh, in verse 27, as he was walking in the temple. The word is really as he was walking about. It's a rather lovely side picture of the Lord Jesus 
walking around. Just walking around looking at this, looking at that, taking in different things, probably making comments, possibly answering questions, seeing this one or that one. And of course you've got it again in, in verse uh, chapter 12 and verse 41 uh, where it says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the multitude putting their money into the treasury. In other words, it's the same thought of him just moving around the temple, taking everything in, watching everyone, uh, and so on. So rather lovely human picture of the Lord Jesus. Now Christ answered their challenge with a question which they could not answer without getting into trouble. Now these folks were adept at asking also very difficult questions. So now the Lord Jesus asks them a very difficult question. His question was quite simple. Who do you say, what, or rather let's put it this way, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? In other words, was the ministry of John the Baptist, his calling, his anointing, his service, his work, was it divine or earthly? Now this immediately started the muttering amongst themselves. <laughs> you could just see it. They started sort of having whispered consultations straight away. Now what are we going to say? If we say, of course, as we Oh, we, we all believe we don't believe it's of God at all. But if we say so, we'll be torn to shreds by the multitude. They'll murder us. Everyone thinks John the Baptist was a man of God, was a true prophet. So we dare say that. If we say, of course, it was divine, then he will say to us, well, why on earth weren't you obedient? Why didn't you get baptized? So, uh, they were forced to a rather inept, we don't know. It must have been dreadful for these learned uh, gentlemen um, to say before a very curious multitude and crowd standing round, we don't know. When they said that, when they refused to answer clearly, the Lord Jesus refused to answer their question about his authority. And let's make another point about this. It's not just that the Lord Jesus was making a clever counter question in order to silence them. The point was this. If they had only accepted the anointing and the ministry, the testimony of John the Baptist, their question about the Lord Jesus Christ would have already been answered. They would have had no question. That's the whole point. Whereas if they rejected him, obviously they were going to reject the one of whom he spoke. They had rejected both John and the Messiah of whom he spoke, and they well knew it. Then, when we come to chapter 12 and verse 1, he told them a parable which they were quick to understand. They were not always quick to understand what his meaning was in many other things. But in this parable, they had extraordinarily clear percep perception and understanding. 
It is normally called the parable of the wicked tenants. The parable of the wicked tenants. It was in effect a brief and very pointed survey of Old Testament history and a reiteration of the fact that God is looking for fruit. Without doubt, it was an allusion to Isaiah chapter 5 from verse 1 to 7. This was a very well-known passage and these chief priests and scribes and elders who were well-versed in the scriptures doubtless knew it. Let me sing for my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. He digged it, gathered out the stones that are planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, and also hewed out a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor hoed, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. There's no doubt that this parable was an allusion to this very well-known passage of Scripture. And uh, these powerful representatives of the establishment, well-versed in the Scriptures, would have known this only too clearly. It was also the parable that the Lord told, which we have contained in these first 12 verses of chapter 12. It was also an extraordinarily clear prophecy concerning what they were going to do to him. Their fathers had rejected, derided, murdered the prophets. They had in fact rejected, derided, and in one sense, their generation, murdered John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, they would reject and murder the Messiah himself. Let us note five things about this parable which are absolutely basic to a tremendous amount in the New Testament. Don't look upon this parable as a little aside thing. It is basic to a tremendous amount in the book of Acts and in the letters of the New Testament. Here are five things I want you to note. One, they, the Lord Jesus told them clearly that one, they and the whole institutional, traditional system they represented would be destroyed. He says it in verse 10. Uh, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
This was literally fulfilled in AD 70. And many of those who were younger, who would have been about 30 years of age at this time, or younger, or even those who were 40, who lived to reach their 70th year, would have died in the terrible siege of Jerusalem when the whole Jewish aristocracy were crucified. So this was terribly and literally fulfilled. Secondly, they were rejected because they did not produce the fruit God looked for. This had been evidenced in their attitude to the prophets and supremely evidenced in their rejection and murder of the Messiah. Thirdly, the kingdom would be given to the believing of all nations. You see in verse um, 9, and he will give the vineyard to others. Let's just read a passage in Romans chapter 9 which deals with just this whole matter of the rejection of the Jewish people. Chapter 9, Romans, verse 25 and 26. I'll read from verse 24. Even us whom he also called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as he saith also in Hosea, I will call that my people which was not my people, and her beloved that was not beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the sons of the living God. The vineyard is given to the believing of all nations, and thus God's spiritual temple would become truly a house of prayer for all nations. Fourthly, their history was to be explained and understood in terms of tenancy or stewardship on the one hand and divine and eternal building and construction work on the other. Now this is very, very important for us to understand. The Lord Jesus was giving a key to the whole history of God's dealings with his chosen people. He was simply saying to them, look here, you haven't been chosen because you're something in yourself. You've been chosen to be stewards. The very love of God which lighted upon you was that you might be channels through which something might come to others. You might be tenants. It's a tenancy. These oracles that are given to you, the word of God which is given to you, the covenants of God which are given to you, you're tenants of these things, you're stewards of these things, you're holding them in trust for the whole world. Oh, if we could only understand it, if they'd only understood it then. And so the whole of Jewish history, or the history of God's people in the Old Testament, is explained in terms of tenancy or stewardship. And secondly, it must be understood and explained in terms of eternal and divine building and construction work. Now what do we mean? Well, do you know that the whole of human history can be explained in terms of a divine building program? 
a divine building program. Now, uh, you see it, of course, here. First, the tenancy. We see when in uh, verse um, 2, I think it is. Just wait, let's have a look. Verse 1. A man planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, dug a pit for the wine built a tower, and let it out to tenants. All that God did. He let it out to tenants. Uh, verse 10. The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. In other words, there's a big building program in all this. The whole history of these people, the whole history of these people was a building program. And these, these, these powerful leaders, these powerful uh, representatives of the establishment, they were builders in this building, they were supposed to be. And they had rejected the chief cornerstone. Now what does all this mean? Well, if we turn to Hebrews and uh, chapter 11 and verse 10, we read this about Abraham. For he looked for the city which hath the foundations, whose builder and maker is God whose builder and maker has got This city is, of course, an invisible city. It's a spiritual city. Its builder and maker is God. Abraham, right back in the dim, distant, prehistoric past, looked for that building which God was producing. That city of which God was the builder and the architect. The city which has the foundations. These People, these powerful representatives, as I have called them, of the Jewish establishment, had missed the whole point concerning their history. They did not see it in terms of stewardship. They did not see it in terms of building. They were meant to be tenants. They looked upon themselves as owners. They were meant to be builders. But they had rejected the chief cornerstone from which the whole building was to take its shape and form. How important that is to understand. And may I say this to all of us Christians, when sometimes we sneer at the world, or when we look down upon the world, or when sometimes we have that Jewish, New Testament Jewish conception of the people around us as dogs, the sort of uncircumcision, <clears throat> unclean, dirty. We must be very careful that we don't fall into this same trap. We are stewards of something. God has given, has given us something that we might be, as it were, stewards of his manifold grace, passing on let us also remember that God is in a building program and oh, how much of the New Testament is taken up just with that. Let all things be done unto edification, building up. That's how you can judge everything. If it causes division, if it causes darkness, if it causes destruction, disintegration, it's not right. For God is the supervisor, the master builder, of a building program. Let all things be done unto building up. 
Oh, there's such a lot here that we could stop with. We must go on. The fifth point that comes out of this parable is a glorious one. The Lord Jesus told them quite clearly that the rejected stone, the Messiah, would be enthroned beyond the power of the devil or evil men to touch or reach. Verse 10 and 11. This is what he says. The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. That's the ascension. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That's a direct reference to the resurrection. When they had done their worst, rejected, and they thought, done away with the stone, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and made him the head of the corner. This was marvelous in our eyes because it was the Lord's doing. Well, there you have this wonderful horse of an enthroned Christ and the whole of the New Testament takes that up. I think of all well-known verses I hear often quoted where it says the Lord Jesus has gone into heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Angels and principalities and powers being subject unto him. That's how Peter put it. I think of the Apostle Paul Far above all principality and power, he said. And every name that is named, and so on. There are many, many scriptures in connection with this. I think, too, of this, in this connection, that God's building program will therefore not be frustrated. Because when men did their worst, and sought to destroy that building program, God took it out of the sphere of men onto a resurrection level. And now the whole building is beyond the reach of men or devils to touch. Isn't that marvelous? So the building program will go on, if we'll only trust and obey, will go on to its completion. Now you've got so many scriptures about this. I think of all kinds of things that suddenly spring to mind. For instance, 1 Peter, chapter 2. Do you see how this is explained? Verse 4, Unto whom coming a living stone, rejected indeed of men, but with God elect, precious, ye also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house. And then it goes on about the stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner. It's the same reference. Maybe Peter was thinking about this. This very challenge to the Lord's authority in the temple. He was probably there. Saw it all. Then again, I think of Ephesians chapter 2, a very well-known passage, I suppose, to all of us, where it says, So then ye are no more strangers and sojourners, but ye are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation. Of God in the Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? 
Or again, I think of this perhaps not so well known to some. Ephesians 4, verse 11, talking about his ascension when he ascended on high, that he may fill all things. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints under the work of ministering, under the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, there you are. Doesn't that make you realize there's a lot more in that parable than perhaps we thought? The Lord Jesus Christ, the rejected Messiah, the rejected stone, God has made the chief cornerstone. And the whole building is taking its form and shape from him. And nothing on earth can stop that building. The Lord Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Thank God for that. This, all this infuriated them. And they tried to arrest him there and then. They only gave up the attempt, probably after more hurried, whispered consultations, because of their fear of the crowds. That's exactly what it says, verse 12. Now we come to the next section, from chapter 12, verse 13, to verse 37. It's a rather hard passage to give a title to. Um, I have put the most general title, Questions in the Temple. All these questions, not, uh, no doubt not all the questions that were asked are here, but certain questions have been selected because they have so much to teach us. Now this whole section up to verse 37 has an atmosphere of brooding hatred and slowly mounting fury on the part of the Jewish establishment. It covers in all probability one day in that week as I think I've already said, are more than likely the same day on which the, the Lord cleansed the temple. Now we have four questions. Let's see if we can deal with them. The first question is the Pharisees and Herodians question about the paying of taxes to Caesar. Uh, from verse 13 to 17, should we pay taxes? <laughs> well, of course, it's a good question. The temple authorities and leaders now sent a group of Pharisees and Herodians to Christ with a trick question. It wasn't just a spontaneous question that came out of the crowd. This was deliberate. Having been silenced, though infuriated, they now sent this group of Pharisees and Herodians. Normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians were the most ferocious enemies. The Pharisees were strictly orthodox, fundamentalist, with a horror of anything remotely Gentile, whilst the Herodians were a political group, not a religious group, but a political group, who believed that the half-Gentile, actually half-Edomite of all things, Herod, though outwardly orthodox, ruling with and by Roman power, was the best hope for the Jewish people. 
that the Pharisees and the Herodians could come together with a trick question is extraordinary. But then this happened again and again. Pontius Pilate and Herod, who just hated each other, they came together and became the best of friends from that day off, from that day onwards, over the trial of Christ. It's most extraordinary how enemies unite. Well, these people united. Why? Because they were united in their common hatred of Christ and all that he stood for and were prepared to come together in order to trick him into a fatal answer. They, the question they asked <clears throat> was so simple. Should we pay taxes to Caesar, to the emperor? Yet, the shrewdest mind could not have thought out a more brilliantly cunning question. It was centered in the Roman tax. Now, just try to listen to this because it'll help you understand. It wasn't just a question of paying taxes. It was centered on the Roman tax, not the temple tax, which they all agreed to pay, the Jewish tax, but the, but the Roman tax, the payment of which was the servile acknowledgement of the Roman right to occupy and govern Palestine, the promised land. For a whole century, up to 70 AD, it was the most burning issue in both political and religious circles. Indeed, it was partly behind the Great Revolt of 66, which led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jewish people. Every good Jew hated this tax. He abhorred it. Because for him, the paying of it was the sign that the free sons of God, of Abraham, were under Gentile, worldly, heathen government. Now, if Christ said they were not to pay the tax, he would be in serious trouble with the Roman authorities. Indeed, he would be finished. And he knew it. It carried capital sentence. In other words, anyone who incited people not to pay the Roman tax was as good as dead, as far as the Roman authorities were concerned. And it seems that these Pharisees and Herodians uh, expected Christ, quite fully expected Christ to answer, oh, you shouldn't pay the tax. Because Luke tells us so in chapter 20, verse 20, if you want to look it up, he tells us that they expected him to answer uh, in the negative, and thus they could charge him with inciting the people not to pay the tax. If, however, Christ were to say that they should pay the tax, the multitude who had heard him with delight and were quite sympathetic, would be shocked and disgusted. In fact, there was more than a little possibility that his own Galilean uh, folks, who were very turbulent and hot-blooded, 
people, the most hot-blooded uh, in the whole of Palestine, would have rioted and possibly stoned him. So uh, whatever happened, his standing with the people would have been finished if he had said this. For the establishment would have said, there you are, he's a traitor and a collaborationist. Christ's answer was more than a brilliantly clever answer to a brilliantly cunning question. He enunciated a principle which is both basic and practical to all of our lives. We are to render to Caesar, that is to the queen or to the state, what belongs to Caesar, that is what belongs to the queen or to the state. And we are to render to God what belongs to God. What does this mean? It means this. Now listen very carefully in these permissive anarchistic days in which we live, especially you young people. Now listen carefully. We cannot take all and give nothing. It's as simple as that. If the state cares for us, if it builds our roads, if it gives us security, if it provides peace for us, if it provides us with social standard of living, we are responsible to that state. That's why the Lord took a coin and said, whose head? There can be no commerce, no economy, without money. Whose head is this? Caesar's, they said. Very well. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. How simple this is. Now, in the notes you'll find a whole lot of scriptures about this, because there's an awful lot in the New Testament about it. We're told that we're to, uh, to respect the powers that are uh, above us. We're told that we're to honor the king or the queen, if you like. We're told that we're to pray for the Queen and for all who are in high places of authority. We're told that the magistrate's word is to be law to us and we are to obey it because he's been placed there by God. We're to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The laws of our country are to be obeyed, not broken. And let no one think that he can break any national or local law or bylaw for some spiritual reason. You will not get away with it. If you disagree with the country in which you live, emigrate. Well, that's, that's right. Emigrate, get out. Go where you can think. But do not take in one hand all that your country gives to you and give nothing back in return. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But now just wait, lest we forget just as important a principle Render unto God what is God's. We cannot experience the salvation of God. We cannot experience the blessings of God. We cannot know the fullness of his love, of his grace, and of his fellowship, the fellowship of his church, the fellowship of his family, the fellowship of his body without serious responsibilities. We cannot take, 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 and give nothing. We must render to God what belongs to God. 
Therefore, if we receive from God things, we must see that God has back something. We must give Him His rightful place. We must give Him His priorities. Recognize His priorities, let's put it that way. We must honor and obey His word in all things. We must love and care for His family, His work, and His servants. Please turn your cassette over at this point. In all things, we must love and care for his family, his work, and his servants. Give or render unto God what belongs to God. What a principle. Let's know one or two things about this now if you just look at the chapter. Uh, the verses 13 to 17. First verse 13. They sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to catch him in talk. That's the revised version rendering. To entrap him in his talk. That's the revised standard version. To trap him in with a question. That's the New English Bible. So it was a deliberate, cunning bit of trickery. Secondly, Will you notice the insincere flattery? Oh, how clever people can be. Always be on your guard when people start to flatter. Here it is, verse 14. They told Christ that he was true. That is honest. Not a psychopath. That is a man, uh, men pleaser. A true teacher of the way of God. And they didn't believe a word of it. And the Lord Jesus knew it. What a load of hypocrisy. Here they were, representatives of the temple, of the word of God, of the covenants of God, the character of God, telling a load of lies. The Pharisees and Herodians were absolutely tongue-tied by Christ when he answered this question. The word here, which you've got as amazed or uh, marveled or... Uh, different versions of put just denotes a kind of staggered astonishment. They just couldn't get over it. <laughs> that he'd said, went to Caesar to what is Caesar's, and to God what belongs to God. That just shut him up. Now the next question is the Sadducees. They, of course, would have nothing to do with the Pharisees at all. And it is a question of the resurrection of the dead, from verse 18 to 27. The Sadducees came with another trick question. It was a trick, trick question. It's not a genuine one at all. They were a much smaller party than the Pharisees. Didn't like them at all. They were arch enemies. They were mostly drawn from the ruling class, the wealthy landowners. The high priestly family and many of the chief priests were Sadducees. They accepted only the law as really authoritative. That is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were all that they accepted, nothing else. Prophets, Psalms, writings, they were interesting but not authoritative. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirit. And they did not believe in an afterlife or the resurrection of the dead. Politically, they believed in cooperation with Rome. By telling a deliberately facetious story, they held up to ridicule the resurrection of the dead. Now, I don't 
I noticed on Sunday a number of people did laugh, which is the right reaction to this story. It is, in fact, a deliberately funny story. But most people now are far too reverent to laugh uh, at uh, the word of God. So they keep a respectful silence as if there's tremendous depth of meaning and mystery in this. But in actual fact, you can almost hear the guffaws of the crowd. Think of that poor woman. Have you ever thought of what a dreadful story it was? A poor woman married seven times and she never got a child at the end of it either. The crowd just guffawed with laughter. It was such a funny story, this poor woman, because of some obscure regulation in the book of, book of Le Leviticus, having to marry these seven brothers, one after another, they all died. And then comes the great question, whose wife is she in the resurrection? Because she had seven husbands. So which one's going to be sorted out as her husband in eternity? That was the question. Christ answered them first by telling them that they had missed the whole point by failing to understand either the scriptures or the power of God. Verse 24. Now we ought to note here that these two always go together in balanced knowledge and experience. Some people want the power of God without the, the scriptures. Other people want the scriptures without the power of God. The two always go together. If you get one without the other, you're always in trouble. You either have lifeless formalism, dead orthodoxy, or you get queer, eccentric, lunatic fringe type experience. The two must go, they must never be divorced, the scriptures and the power of God. Then he pointed out, one, verse 25, there is no married state in heaven. Will everyone kindly get that clear? <laughs> There is no married state in heaven. There is a deep, intuitive sense in most people that marriage outlasts death, outlasts life. It doesn't. The marriage service is perfectly correct when it says, till death do us part. It is for time. Of course, we shall meet one another uh, in eternity. Of course, having lived a whole life together, I should imagine there would be some kind of sort of uh, understanding and relationship. But there is neither a married state nor any uh, marrying in eternity. Get that quite clear. The Lord's little comment had humor as well as a sting in it when he said, they are as angels. <laughs> because the Sadducees didn't believe in angels. <laughs> uh, secondly, the law itself um, proves that there is life after death and a resurrection. Verse 26 and verse 27. Let's read that. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, most of us, I think, fail to understand what the Lord was trying to say. I know I did for a long, long time. It's absolutely wonderful once you realize it. What was the Lord saying? First, he didn't take from the Psalms or the prophets. He went right back to the five books which they accept as only authoritative. The first five books. He went back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. And he said, have you not heard 
that when God declared himself to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He didn't say as you Sadducees would have supposed. I was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. For instance, it's like God saying, I am the God of Martin Luther. We say, oh, just wait, you mean I was the God of Martin Luther? No! I am the God of Martin Luther. He's alive as much as he, as he was. In a different dimension, that's all. He's alive. I am his God now. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The Sadducees had never heard anything like it. It was quite staggering for them that the Lord had spoken of himself as the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob four centuries after their death. The Sadducees were silenced by the Lord's authoritative, you're quite wrong, or you're greatly mistaken, New English Bible. Then we have the scribes' question. Let's move on quickly. From verse 28 to um, verse 34. 28 to 34. A scribe who'd been listening to all the disputing and had been impressed with the, with the way Christ had answered now asks a question. Which is the greatest command? From Matthew 22, verses 34 and 35, we learn that he was a Pharisee scribe, a Pharisaic scribe, and that it was another trick question. Nevertheless, we get more than a little impression that this man was honest and sincere. Um... I think we get that, of course, from what the Lord said to him later in verse 34, and also the way the man ponders over what the Lord has said and adds to it. It's better, he says, infinitely better than whole burnt offering and sacrifice. The man's quite sincere. The whole, he breathes sincerity and honesty. His, his question appears to be quite simple, but was in fact, as I said on Sunday evening, no easy one to answer in the light of rabbinic theology. Which commandment is the first or greatest? Let me put it another way, and then you'll be able to understand what he was getting at. Now listen very carefully. Not which is the first commandment in order, but what kind of commandment is the most binding and important before all others? That's what he meant. Christ answered by bringing together two scriptures both of which were summaries of the law in principle. One in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and the other in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. The first spoke of the law in its Godward aspect, and the second of the law in its manward aspect. And if you look at those, you'll see that they're summaries. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy might. And the second from Leviticus, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord Jesus thus summed up the whole law with its multitudinous aspects and variety of application in the positive twofold command, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. No one had ever heard such a thing before. Nor had these two ever been brought together before by anyone. He reduced the vast complexity of laws to the utter simplicity of one eternal principle, divine love. Nor can any one of us ever get beyond this. In the love of God, shed abroad in our hearts, that perfect love which casts out fear, which enables us to lay down our lives for God and for others, everything is fulfilled. Divine love, strong, true, sensitive, compassionate, is the basic quality which God looks for in everything and without which all is meaningless, empty, and superficial. That's why you've got a 1 Corinthians 13. And sometimes we are in danger of forgetting that the last word in that chapter is, and the greatest of the which means that God looks upon love as greater in necessity than even faith. Faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. Therefore the Lord says, you can have faith to remove mountains if you have not love, nothing. Think of that. Not something but nothing. You can give your body to be burned and your goods to feed the poor, but if you have not love, nothing. To give your body to be burned as a martyr, to give your goods to feed the poor, isn't that love? You can do it from duty, from a sense of uh, devotion to a principle, obstinacy almost. He has no love, that means nothing. Well, I've, we've said it again and again, but it is interesting that those, flame, those eyes were like a flame of fire. They said, thou hast left thy first love to a church which had so much. Because of this, he said, you must repent, or else I will remove your lampstand out of its place. How serious that is. Now let's just note one or two things about this. There is no other commandment more important or binding. The Lord Jesus himself said it. Verse 31. Listen to his words. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do please underline that in your Bible. There is no other commandment greater than this. So never put anything else before it. That's the first thing. The second thing, thou art not far from the kingdom, verse 34. What wonderful, moving words spoken in the midst of hostility and trickery. Aren't they beautiful? Thou art not far from the kingdom. It's the servant of the Lord again. And the third thing, note that after this, there were no more questions. He'd put his finger on something there. 
that brought a sense of shame to everyone. Now we come to Christ's question. First is 35 to 37. Now he asks them a question. They have asked him questions. Now he asks them a question. And he asks them a question based on a messianic psalm, Psalm 110. It was a theological question to end all theological questions. Here it is. All parties taught that the Messiah would be the son of David. How then could David, speaking of his son the Messiah, speak of him as his Lord? Very good question. Not one of the learned rabbis or scribes or doctors of the law could answer. Silence reigns supreme. And the great multitude loved every minute of it. Like always the crowd who loved to see the establishment embarrassed. They loved it when all those great and learned and rather pompous figures couldn't even make a comment on this matter. But um, don't let us just think that the Lord gave them a very difficult question. There's no doubt that Christ was not just asking a difficult question to silence them or embarrass them. He was drawing attention to the essential mystery of the person of the Messiah. In his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he had, he had claimed to be that Messiah. In the parable he had told in Mark chapter 12 and verses 1 to 12, he had said that the Messiah was the only beloved son of the Father. Now, he is even greater than David, whose son he is. He is seen as David's Lord. That was the end of questioning. Now we move to this last few verses. Oh, that's wrong. That should be 38 not 41. Never mind. The heart of the matter revealed. The heart of the matter revealed. This passage concludes this subdivision I have entitled The Rejection of the Servant of the Lord by the Jewish people and their rejection by God. In many ways it's an extraordinary conclusion. We have in verses 38 to 40 the denunciation of the scribes and uh, it is followed in verses 41 to 44 by the commendation of a poor widow. It's surely not coincidence that in denouncing the scribes, Christ spoke of them as devouring widows' houses or widows' property. And then commends one of those self-same widows in verses 43 and 44. That's, not a, that's no coincidence. It seems clear to me that we have two kinds of person taken from among the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, to represent on the one hand the Jewish establishment and on the other the despised but believing remnant. The way this is done reveals consummate skill and insight. Firstly, we have a small but perfect pen picture of the Jewish establishment, the temple leaders and religious authorities, symbolized in the scribes from verse 38 to 40. 
It's all a question of professionalism. Titles, clothes, places, positions. Got that in verse 38 and 39. Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and have salutations in the marketplaces. Of course, today we would say who like to have a white collar, but I have to be a little bit careful. Uh, who like to have titles. And uh, the salutation of the mark, the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feasts. Here it is then. It's all a matter of traditions, of institutional formalism, correctness, out of which divine light and divine love and divine life has long since departed. A great facade of piety and orthodoxy, yet behind it the spirit and mind and greed of this world. All the ambition and covetousness of the world. Listen to the way the Lord sums it up. Who devours widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Outwardly, all long prayers to God. So pious, so devout, so godly and behind. Widow's property swallowed up by double dealing. Of course, the widow is taken here because the, very much of the Old Testament talks about the needs of widows. And uh, they had no health service, no national uh, social security in those days. Of course, you understand that. Be a widow was a dreadful thing, especially if you had no family. So here we've got it. Behind it, the spirit and mind of this world. The scribes, with all their theological teaching and knowledge, their ability to analyze and dissect everything, their skill at making all things, even the most simple, complex, their blindness and lifelessness when it came to things spiritual made them the perfect symbol of the Jewish establishment. It's the barren fig tree again. All leaves, no fruit. The kind of orthodoxy which has no real or living faith and is found always rejecting in the name of God what God is doing. Oh, that could explain an awful lot in church history. Right the way through church history, you'll find it. From the Reformation with Luther, they rejected it in the name of God. To the nonconformists, the Puritan nonconformists, to the Quakers, to the Methodists, and so on we could go on. Always, always, the kind of blind orthodoxy which he always, in the name of God, is rejecting what God is doing. It's the spirit of Antichrist wearing a form of godliness. We've seen it all summed up in the trickery and the cunning shrewdness behind the questions asked of Christ. No recognition of the blind who saw, of the deaf who heard, of the lame who walked, of lepers who were cleansed, of the dead who lived again. No recognition of the needs, the deep human needs of human beings met and satisfied. 
No recognition at all, only an implied, implacable hatred of Christ, a consuming desire to reject him and to undo him. Now with that dark picture as a background, we then have the story of one poor widow. No titles, no place or position for her, no fine clothes. She was living in poverty. We read that in verse 44. No one would have even noticed her in the crowds had not the Lord drawn attention to her. Many rich people were putting large sums of money into the treasury when that poor widow slipped up to the coffer and dropped in two tiny copper coins, the smallest in circulation. It was our whole living. We may well wonder how hard she'd slaved to work those two coins. What we do know is that she gave them both to God. She may well have questioned in her heart whether she ought to keep one. Or she may well have wondered what God could do with two coins that together hardly made a father. But she gave both of them to God. Some inner compulsion of faith, some dynamic of her inward spiritual life, some unquenchable love for God burning in her, some power to lay down her life for God and for others caused her, enabled her, out of her poverty, to give away her whole living. Do not ask me to explain, because I cannot. I only know that she was the vindication of God's ways over thousands of years with his people. That that day, she represented before the Messiah in his temple all that God had ever wanted from temple or nation. That in her, that one poor widow, was fulfilled a concept, a divine concept, an ideal of service which Israel had failed to come to and which alone had been expressed in Christ as the servant of the Lord. For she only, of all who were in the temple that day from high priests, to those who worshipped, expressed the same kind of heart, the same kind of nature, the same kind of character as God. The kind of service, the kind of nature, the kind of heart that gives all it has out of love for others. In this, she was the nearest to God's heart in the whole system. God had come to his temple. 
God had come to Israel looking for fruit. He found only leaves. In the whole institutional system, those eyes of fire found nothing. No life, no faith, no love, no devotion, no real service. But in this poor widow, this one poor widow, God found his own heart and his own character. God found himself. Now in all that, she symbolizes for us that believing despised remnant in Israel. Yet it was precisely that remnant, poor in spirit, which was to inherit the kingdom of God. As the Lord had said in his great message, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And it was that small despised remnant, believing remnant, devoted remnant, faithful remnant, that were destined by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to turn the whole world upside down and were instrumental in bringing the gospel to us in the long run. Let us then note four things and we close. The first, verse 41. Will you notice that it says in your authorized version and your revised version, better I think than the newer version, he beheld how the multitudes cast their money into the treasury. That is very important. He beheld how, not the amount, but how. It was the attitude of the giver which the Lord watched and still watches. Every person that goes to the treasury, God watches. He's not watching the amount. He's watching the attitude. It's the spirit and the character and the heart behind the giving which means more to God than all the silver and gold in the whole wide world. God doesn't need your money in one sense. God wants you. As he said to Solomon, with all his wealth and all his glory, my son, give me your heart. God cannot be satisfied with activity, with knowledge, with money, even with time. God wants us. And I believe that that's why it is essential not to have a collection, but to have a treasury. When a collection comes around, I think it's asking for trouble. Because we all have such an artificial attitude. Oh, I must give. Whereas people don't see you, at least your hand fluttering over the plate. They wonder what's happening. Something wrong. But when it's somewhere, treasury and so on, we've got to go there. 
I believe God's always there. It's not what we put in. It's the heart that he looks at. How important that is. Second thing, verse 44. They out of their abundance and she out of her poverty. Or the authorised version, out of her want. I like that. Out of her want. They out of their abundance. I think the American Standard Version puts superfluity. Lovely word. Superfluity. That is, it was superflowing. Their money. Plenty of it. Coming in. And, I suppose they felt, going out. They out of their abundance, she out of her poverty. What a world of difference in the giving of these two classes. Well, there again, God watches that, doesn't he? One old divine said, it's not what you give, it's what you hold back that God knows. That's interesting, isn't it? It rather contradicts what I said a few moments ago, but it still goes back to spiritual character that lies behind. Third thing, verse 43, she has put in more than them all. That's staggering. Now that is absolutely staggering, and it needed God to say it, for no human being could have said it. She has put in more than them all. How can a farthing be more than seven or eight gold shekels? How can a farthing or a penny be more than 5,000, 10,000 pounds? By our standards, think what we can do with 10,000 pounds. We can't do much with a penny, can we? Someone here puts a penny in the treasury, the Lord bless you. But I would think, what can we do with it? <laughs> Someone put in 10,000 pounds, and my, there's a lot that can be done with 10,000 pounds. That's the way the worldly mind thinks. Not the way God thinks. How often I have noted in the history of this company that when some tiny little gift has come, it's been like the forerunner of the Messiah. Little gift that had no bearing at all upon the vast sum that was needed. And we felt in our hearts, aha, the other's coming. Why? Because someone has given something which cost them everything. And then the rest comes. She has put in more than them all. <laughs> it was Passover. It was the Wednesday before Passover. They were all running up to the box and putting in their money. Outdoing one another. Almsgiving. Tremendous thing in Jewish circles. Almsgiving. And of course, as the Lord said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand do, because they all did. They would take their shekels and boink! <laughs> they dropped it into the treasury. No quiet dropping it in. No paper notes in those days, you know. And so uh, they, they, they all came in and with great flourish they dropped in their arms. 
uh, went out of their way feeling, hope he noticed that. <laughs> spotted the, the prophet from Galilee sitting over there. One after another, didn't mean a thing. Didn't mean a thing. I have no doubt the Lord Jesus thought, why don't you keep it? Think you're doing us all a service? But then came this little widow. I don't think she was ragged or dirty. I think she was probably speckless. She was one of those typical little widows that are the life and soul and energy of everything. In she scurried, probably between one job and another, sped up to the box and clink, clink, two little tiny copper coins went in and fell between the wedges of gold and silver. Oh, what is it? For her, it was her whole living. She turned to go. But then, some boy, some strange, authoritative voice, some compassionate voice of love, said, woman, and she stopped. It was the Lord. What a day it was. She has put in more than them all. I can see her almost giggling. <laughs> more than them all? Oh, <laughs> you're being funny. But she had. And the last thing I want you to notice is the fact that we call her the poor widow. We are quite wrong. She was, in fact, the richest widow in Israel. She wasn't poor, not by heaven's standard. She was rich in faith, because that alone could have let her put her whole living in. She was rich in love, nothing else could have compelled her to let go of it all to God. She was rich in power. She got the attention of God. That's power. Don't talk to me about any other kind of power. Power is when you can catch the ear of God. When you can attract the attention of God. That's power. For once you've got God's attention, you can do anything. When you know you've been heard, it says in the scripture, you know you have what you've asked. Power! She was rich in power. She was more powerful than the high priest. It was the scribes, the establishment, that were poor and blind and naked. But they didn't know it. To her belonged the kingdom of God. Well, she's in the glory now. And I've no doubt the Lord is saying to her, perhaps at this moment, they're talking about you. Those two farthings you put in the treasury. Shall never be forgotten. She was God's glory and God's vindication. And so in this dark picture of the rejection of the Sabbath the law by the Jewish people and God's rejection of them, this little, this one poor widow stands out 
as the herald of a new day and a new beginning and an Israel which, in which all the believing were to be incorporated. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we just commit ourselves to Thee. There's such a lot in all that's been said. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt apply just what is needed to each heart. Thou knowest, Lord, the needs of every heart. O oh, Lord, may thy word mean something to every one of us. And may we be those above and beyond everything else, like that poor widow, rich in faith, rich in love, and rich in power. We ask it, Lord, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.